Well, this is uh, Sunday, uh, our first Sunday of the month, where we really try to fill the service with uh, music and beauty. Uh, we try it every week, but we really focus hard. And if you were here early and sing along, perhaps you, like me, need a little bit more music to fill your spirit and get you in that spirit of praise. And so we're doing that every week, starting just a little bit early. So if you get here and want to join in singing praises... Uh, we just invite you to be doing that. Back in the 70s, the 1970s, when students seized the American embassy in Iran and took the embassy staff hostage, the president, the pre President Jimmy Carter, approved a rescue mission which went terribly wrong. The helicopters got bogged down in the sand and, and in the darkness, and uh, the helicopters crashed, and the would-be rescuers uh, were all killed. It was an utter fiasco. The president then did something that we may never see again in our lifetime. He got on television and he said that the mission and its failure was his responsibility. Can you imagine? He took the blame. Can you imagine a president now taking responsibility for such a, a failure? Things have changed, haven't they? But we can't really blame politicians or anyone for that matter because the cost of admitting mistakes is so high. Neither your insurance company nor your lawyer <laughs> wants you to admit they don't want you to say it's my fault. <coughs> Even when that is the truth. Passing the buck is so much more convenient than saying the buck stops here. Because admitting fault costs big bucks. In the early 1900s, the London Times asked a few Christian writers to submit essays addressing the question, what's wrong with the world? And one writer, G.K. Chesterton, sent a very brief letter to the editors, and it said, Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> Chesterton was a humorist, but he was not being cute. A practicing Roman Catholic, Chesterton believed what the Apostle Paul uh, believed that the Apostle Paul was right when he wrote about the universal scope of sin, uh, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is blameworthy. Not everyone else 
<laughs> but everyone, including me. Now, don't we usually answer that question, what's wrong with the world, by pointing elsewhere? It's those liberals. It's those activist courts. It's the feminazis. It's the unions. It's the Islamic fundamentalists. It's the religious right. It's the IRS. It's... <laughs> it's woke teachers. It's secular atheists. It's the bureaucracy. It's the red states. It's the media. It's welfare moms. It's corporate America. It's the school board. <laughs> Everything would be so much better if they were not so immoral, so unethical, so dishonest, stupid, and sinful. What's wrong with the world we think would be made right if they weren't so wrong. But the Christian understanding of sin firmly asserts, I am primarily what's wrong with the world. So if you don't want to take that type of responsibility, I would suggest exploring another faith tradition that will let you off the hook. One theologian writes, though many of us were raised in traditions that stressed the depth of our personal sin, we've allowed ourselves to be talked out of it. There are other factors, more evil and villainous at work. So in the modern world, we see all our deeds as psychological, sociological, economic, or biological responses to environmental, external, and even genetic factors. Now, there is a great deal of truth in that modern ass assessment that our brokenness is because of our dysfunctional families, institutional pressures, or systemic injustice, which is a thing. We should not ignore that. But it becomes problematic when we begin to see all of our deeds as being based on things external and outside of us. When we don't take any responsibility for what's wrong. Because then we see ourselves only as victims of other people's sin. Rather than perpetrators of sin. If all of our problems are based on the alcoholic parent, or we cheat on taxes because the tax code is unfair anyway, 
or we do this or that because everyone else does it. Then we are talking ourselves out of personal sin and personal responsibility. I didn't do my homework because my teacher just didn't explain it to me. What parent takes that as an excuse? <laughs> my child would not misbehave if it weren't for the fact that they were being pressured by their peers. What parent doesn't say that? <laughs> if the church board just had their priorities in, in, uh, in order, there would be no problems in our church. What's wrong with whatever in all those statements is external to me. So again, if whatever is wrong is external to me, then I'm just a victim of someone else's sin. Now it may seem odd that I am focusing on the issue of sin in, in the context of this passage from Romans. After all, it was when uh, Martin Luther reread Romans that he discovered the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. Luther's articulation of salvation by grace through faith rather than salvation by works was the foundation of the Protestant Reformation. And this doctrine of grace is what all the variety of Protestant denominations have in common. Why then, instead of talking about grace, am I talking about sin? Well, because a solid structure and a solid understanding of grace is set firmly upon a proper and complete understanding that acknowledges our capacity and our propensity to sin. But don't hear me saying that the understanding of sin's pervasiveness in our lives is a call to self-flagellation or to a codependent fostering of guilt and shame. You've heard me say plenty of times now that guilt is useless if it lasts more than 10 seconds. Because if it lasts longer than 10 seconds, you haven't decided how to rectify the issue. So acknowledging what sin entails, it means becoming, it's the means by which we become aware of something that is extraordinary, that there is nothing that is wrong with us that is beyond God's forgiveness when we are willing to be honest and admit I am what's wrong with the world. I shared this in a sermon last October uh, part of this. Eugene Peterson who's one of my Favorite author says, one of the frequently misunderstood features of the gospel is this. That a confession of sin isn't 
is not a groveling admission that I'm a terrible person and it doesn't require beating ourselves up. Rather, the sentence I have sinned is a sentence full of hope. Because only when I recognize and confess my sin am I in a position to recognize and respond to the God who saves me from sin. If I'm ignorant of or indifferent to sin, then I'm ignorant and indifferent to the great and central message of God's amazing grace. Now, I don't think I shared this the last time. Instead of avoiding sin, uh, Peterson uh, urges that we all become sin watchers. And he uses the analogy of bird watching. And he says uh, that we should go looking for our sin with a, he says, certain sense of anticipation and delight. For each discovery of our sin brings us again to the brink of grace. There is an Episcopal rector, Barbara Brown Taylor. She goes so far as to say this. She says, sin is our only hope. Because the recognition that something is wrong is the first step towards setting it right again. Would you not agree? There is no help for those who admit no need of help. There is no repair for those who insist that nothing is broken. And there is no hope of transformation for the world, a world whose inhabitants accept that it is sadly and irreversibly broken. It is so sad when Christians think that the only goal of salvation is to escape this world and get into heaven. So I want to mention a couple of practices that I think are, are really courageous if you take up this offer of practicing these practices that will help us overcome our repression and rationalization of sin. First, keep a log of your sin for a week. Every day, every day, take an inventory of the hurt or wrongdoing that you have caused. The gossip. The character assassination, cursing others, inattention to your family, careless or hurtful words, lying, manipulation, whatever else comes to mind. Now, that may seem to focus on the negative, but the journal of sin isn't, as I said, a way to catalog our wretchedness. Rather, it will become a way to grasp the depth and width and height and breadth of grace. Once we acknowledge the frequency and destructiveness of our wrongdoing, 
we will be utterly dumbfounded by the Christian affirmation that God's greatest act in Christ Jesus was to liberate us from the guilt of sin and of the psychological destruction that we incur when we simply try to repress or deny it. This is the first step of all 12-step programs <laughs> for, for Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, you name it. First step is to acknowledge brokenness. A second thing, <laughs> given our propensity to point fingers, is to have a zero tolerance for the negative use of the third-person pronoun, they. What if we begin to believe that most other people are well-intentioned, even if we disagree with them? I faced this early on in the pandemic. We faced it as a staff team when we closed the, the doors and said, we're all going to worship online because we're all in this together. We're not going to say, well, if you're vulnerable, stay home. We'll let all the strong people come to worship. That sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Not a, not a bit. But the people who were angry, who insisted on that right to gather for worship, left the church, some of them, rather than seeing that the intention is founded on solid Christian principles, caring for all. So rather than putting down the ubiquitous they for being thoughtless or malicious, let's practice saying they only when we have something positive to, to add. Doesn't mean being Pollyanna, <laughs> but it does mean using a modicum of grace when we are speaking for others because after all, God has imparted to us a modicum of grace. Actually, more than a modicum of grace. I think that raises, I, I, was, I added this later, uh, actually a third practice. And that's not listening passively to derisive finger pointers. Now that may mean that we won't be able to listen to some politicians or pundits anymore. But would that really be a loss in your life? No. <laughs> Thank you, Joy. <laughs> so if anything that I've said today fails to impart the message of God's amazing grace, then let me admit right now that's on me. It's all my fault. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>